Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God into his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He stood on the sand of the sea. So this is a part two of a two-part sermon on the dragon and the dragon slayer. Today is about the dragon slayer. The Advent season, this Advent season, we have been taking a different view of the nativity. One that looks deeper than shepherds and wise men to the very spiritual realm itself. The first week was John 1. The babe in the manger wasn't just cute. He wasn't only a sign. He wouldn't just be a miracle worker or a good teacher. He was the word of God. He is, was, and always will be God. He was not given life at birth, but life was in him. And that life was the light of all mankind. This week and last week, we are in the book of Revelation. And I have on here, don't be scared. I remember when I was an early Christian, people warning me, don't read the book of Revelation. It's, it's really scary. I know many people say, I don't like reading the book of Revelation because it fills me with anxiety. Oh, that is a shame. 
Because you know why the book of Revelation is for us? Is to calm our anxieties that in the worst of all circumstances, we are still safe in the palm of our, of our gracious God. Many people are so worried, you know, the big shame of this too is that there is a special blessing of reading and listening to the book of Revelation. That's why during, the, during our uh, class on the book of Revelation, every week I'd have someone read, and after they were done reading, I would say, we are blessed to hear you read, and you are blessed to read. You know, I'd forgotten to uh, remind people about that every so often. Somebody asked me, I was like, what's that about? Is that like a church history thing? I was like, nope, it's just right in the scripture that we are blessed to read and we're blessed to hear it being read um, as well. And there's a blessing in this to understand what this book and scripture means for us today. The portion of scripture has a lot to say about the Christmas story. When you pull back the veil, this is what you see in the nativity. And, you know, in fact, the word apocalypse means to take back the veil. See, there's a way we see things. We see, um, we don't have a nativity set. I should have checked. I should have grabbed one. But we see the nativity set out there. We see the wise men, the shepherds. We see the angels. We see the baby. We see Mary and Joseph. And when we pull back the veil, what we see is a war going on in heaven of a dragon who desperately wants to eat the child. Last week, I told you about a figure missing from every nativity set, everyone I looked at. If you want to make some money, go into making nativity sets, and you can include this one in your nativity set. I played this video last week, but I liked it so much, I wanted to play it this week, too. Thank you very much, Connor. There's a dragon in my nativity, dreadful and immense. The shepherds quake, the wise men shake, and spill their frankincense. The cattle are alone, and the baby is awake, while Joe and Mary tremble. Oh, this must be some mistake. There's a dragon over Bethlehem. I don't know how he came. I didn't think a donkey could have borne the dragon's frame. I don't believe the census had been called for such as him. And I'm certain that when Dragon knocked, no room was at the inn. There's a dragon by the stable. I don't know why he's there. He hasn't bought a present, and he only seems to glare. He hovers over David's town, that still beneath him lies. Yet no one's sleep is dreamless, underneath his piercing eyes. This dragon isn't visible with ordinary sight. You cannot snap a selfie or televise his flight. Unseen he stands for every power that stands against the earth. The death, disease and darkness overshadowing each birth. This dragon is an enemy of all that's good and true. This monster lies and steals and kills. He's coming after you. Above each crib the dragon hovers, sure to swallow whole. Rulers, empires, beauty, joy, a flesh and blood black hole. But dragons always meet their match, they always meet their doom. The hero rises to the fight to cast them into gloom. And so at this nativity arose another player, the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. He was a dragon slayer. He'd come to fight through Hera's plot, through dangers big and small. He took on evil, sickness, death, and triumphed over all. 
a dragon or a baby. Just who would win the fight? It wasn't really fair, you see. The child was a knight. From high above and long before, he knew what must be done. He knew the dragon waiting here, and still he chose to come. There's a dragon in my nativity, the fierce and monstrous danger. But fierce is still the bravery and love within the manger. Concerning the text Becca read today, Eugene Peterson said, This is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. It is the cosmic story of Christmas. When it comes to Christmas, we see the dragon's effects all the time. Elvis sang about a blue Christmas without you. But many people are going to have a blue Christmas this year. It's one of the things the dragon does, the devil does. He takes those sorrows, he takes those pains and tries to use them against us. It's a red Christmas as well. The dragon is red for a reason. Red represents aggression, violence, and death. That is why in the book of Revelation, the horseman of war is a red horseman. The dragon himself, he is a murderer from the beginning. He tries to do his best work around Christmas time. Look at the recent events, even right now. This last Wednesday, this last week, the great storms that happened. Man, do we live, we should live in such thanksgiving. Because we barely got touched compared to what happened to Kentucky. You know, we, we, don't, we, we take so much things for granted, don't we? I mean, I, I think about this all the time. During, during uh, November, I was thinking about being grateful for all the blessings of God. And I come to the point where it's like, I, I just can't because the blessings of God are so numerous. I mean, it's a, it's a blessing that I'm standing here on this stage and it's not falling in because of rot. I mean, like, there's, there's so many blessings that we have that we can't even Im- imagine. During this time, once again, we see the devil's work. We see the dragon's work of trying to cause death and destruction. We saw that in Wisconsin a couple weeks ago during a Christmas parade. Many people will be, will be celebrating this Christmas without many people that they've had in their life for such a long time, friends and family. Those with addictions will find it harder and harder not to relapse. General feelings of depression and sorrow rise up, even in the most cheerful among us. The dragon will attempt to turn loss into despair, fear into rage, joy into sorrow. If he can manage it, even convince those who are crushed in spirit to take their own life, of course he is a red dragon. Once again, that color is to convey his murderous attitude. But last week, at every point, I wanted to mention this, and I mention it again, the dragon is defeated. The dragon is defeated. Explaining the message of, of chapter 12, you have to talk about the great dragon, but you must mention that he has been defeated. That for all his power and fire, his defeated foe, dying power. This week from scripture, I want to reveal to you how he was defeated and how we continue to overcome him. Let's go to the scripture text. We have four names of, of the devil here in chapter 12. It's one of the most complete explanations of who the devil is. It identifies him with four names. Three of these names had actually been thought in uh, times past of three different entities. Satan, the devil, and Satan. 
What we have here in chapter 12 is us an unveiling of who the devil is in which he is all of these and more. Some still try to um, disconnect these names from each other, but you just can't do that and believe that you are believing the word of God. For in John chapter 12, verse 9 contains all four. Verse 9 And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. In chapter 12, we have four names of of this entity. We have the dragon. That's the first one we're told about in chapter 12. I was going to describe what a Greco-Roman understanding of a dragon was, but why bother? Relevant, the most relevant thing is the context, not, so, not just simply the etymology or the history of a word, because we have a direct context in here. He describes the dragon for us. He has seven heads with seven diadems and ten horns. He is red. This has so much imagery in that seven being God's perfect number, so he is once again mocking God with even his appearance. He has seven diadems mocking the urn diadem that our Lord Jesus has upon his brow. He has ten horns referencing the ten nations that would be part of his cabal in the end times, according to the book of Daniel. He is also red. I've talked about that already. The, uh, the dragon here in the next chapter will be, the next chapter will be giving birth to a son. To the, to the Antichrist, the beast out of the sea. And you'll notice the beast out of the sea looks very much like the dragon. But of course he does, because children look like their parents. Jesus, in the book of John, will talk to the Pharisees, and he will tell them straight out that you are children of the devil. Your father is the devil. He is a liar, a murderer from the beginning. In 2 Corinthians 11:14 Paul the apostle talks about false prophets and false teachers that they're like their devil who masquerades as a angel of light. When you see people doing the devil's work today they are like their father the devil. The second they're like their father the dragon. The second name we have is the ancient serpent. Why do we believe the snake in the garden was the devil? Genesis doesn't say it's the devil. You would be hard-pressed to find the Old Testament that it's the devil. It's because of this verse right here. It identifies him as the first liar and deceiver. What was his first lie? Did God really say? When people put God's word into doubt today, they are doing the devil's work. You even see this amongst people who try to pretend that they are doing deep research and everything like that. But what, they will, what their intention is eventually is to, to cause so much doubt, so much panic that a believer would try to not listen to the master's voice. They are like their father, the devil, believing his lies. The devil lies about what God says. And when his offspring that, do that today, they lie about what God says. And then they, and then they proceed to demean the lie that they made of God. We also have the word devil. In the Greek, the word is diabolos. The word is actually more specific than the Hebrew satan. It has everything to do with him being a slanderer. When someone spreads gossip, tells stories about someone, they don't know if it's true or not, or downright lie to assassinate someone's character, they are doing the devil's work for him. And let me just say this, especially in in churches, Nobody needs to fill in that role. He, got, he has it on lock. 
Nobody needs to tell other people's stories behind each other's back to gossip. The devil's fine. He's fine with his work. You don't have to help him. We also have the fourth name of, uh, of, of this creature, Satan, which is the proper way of pronouncing it. Now I'm going to ruin for you every time you hear Satan, as it was ruined for me. The proper pronunciation is Satan. The name is more fleshed out in the Old Testament. He is the enemy and the adversary of the people of God. In the Old, Te- um, in the Old Testament, you're left to wonder, why does he hate humans so much? Why in the book of Job, for instance, when God says, have you considered my servant Job, does Satan want him dead, want his children dead, want him to suffer and suffer and suffer? Why does he hate humanity, especially God's people specifically, so much? We are told then in chapter 12, why? Because he wanted to devour the child, and because he doesn't get to devour the child, he takes it out on those whom the child loves. He still wants to devour the son, but because he can't, he takes it out on those whom the son loves. I've said before, this may be the most complete chapter of description of Satan, Satan in the scriptures we get, but it's not about Satan. We also have a great sign, the cosmic woman. In fact, there's many, there's many theories on who the cosmic woman is here. I'm not going to get into all of them. You can go to our Facebook page and find the chapter 12 of the Revelation series um, for a much more in-depth um, explanation of this. But simply that woman, um, I believe, and I think the scriptures bear this out, she is the believing remnant of Israel, spiritual Israel, of which we actually are also a part um, but uh, we have the we have the cosmic we have the uh, cosmic woman, but she also is not the focus of this chapter. We have the uh, great sign. We have the lesser sign, which is the dragon. But what, who is the center of all of this story? He's only in just one verse, and it is the son, the male child. C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Screwtape Letters, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. C.S. Lewis will go on to say that the devils regard a atheist and a mystic with the same amount of affection. That they like both of them. Because it's the two ways that we fall in regards to this. To have an unhealthy obsession or to, or to discount completely. In revealing the spiritual battle that is Christmas, I don't want to fall into the first error by ignoring the spiritual reality of the dragon. Your problem isn't that you lack Christmas cheer and you're not singing it loud for all to hear. Your problem is the dragon is trying to devour you, so put on some armor so you're a little harder to swallow. I also don't want to fall into the second error by making this message and every message about the dragon, because it's not about the dragon. So last week I proclaimed to you at every point that the dragon is defeated, and this week I want to reveal to you how he's defeated, how we continue to overcome him. In this chapter, in both the Greek, English, and probably other translations, you will find an economy of the number three. You find three in here three times. The chapter likes to use three a lot, three main characters, the woman, the son, and the dragon. You have also secondary character of, of, of Michael and the angels and the devil's angels. The first half has three scenes, the birth of the child, the ejection of the dragon from heaven, and the dragon's attack. And the devil's also defeated in three ways. 
The three ways the devil's defeated is, so this is all in my introduction. I'm going to tell you the first way he's defeated in the introduction. And in my body of my message, I'm going to tell you about the two ways we overcome the devil today. The first way he is defeated, we have the incredible, exciting spiritual battle. The first way he is defeated is through strength of spiritual arms. We sometimes have a mistaken view of God and Satan, of the devil, of them being two equal and opposite forces, like the um, Shinto belief of the yin-yang. But that's not what the scripture reveals at all. In fact, it's an angel that is de- it defeats the devil. I think I have a picture of this. You may have seen this painting from Raphael, not the Ninja Turtle. Nope. It's the one with uh, Michael triumphing over, over Satan. Should be like my last picture. There we go. Um, you've probably seen this. So once again, a painting from Raphael. Once again, not the Ninja Turtle, um, but the Renaissance painter. Um, awesome picture. Michael gleaming, kind of feminine looking. So that's messed up. But anyway, um, and he has his foot on Satan, um, who's, who has his face to the ground with his spear right over him. Satan is defeated, and it's not even God who needs to, needs to unfurl the majority of his power, but it is actually just another angel and, his, and, and the Lord's angels who defeats Satan and his angel. Daniel, in Daniel, Michael is the prince of Israel. This is the ejection of Satan from heaven into earth, and we're not exactly sure when this happens. Um, we many think it's an eternity past, but then we read in Job how Satan has access to the heavenly council. And that's where the book of Job begins is in the heavenly council. So we're not exactly sure when this happened. I personally believe it was around the time of the nativity because that's kind of what we have in here. But I think people can have different opinions and we don't have to disfellowship from each other on, on these kinds of things. Um, But this is the exciting part of chapter 12, the war in heaven, a cosmic war. Max Licato has a book called The Cosmic Christmas in which he fleshes this out, and it's awesome. It's like the angels have like lightsabers and they're fighting an actual dragon and stuff. It's fanciful, but it's, it's it's really fun. This is the, will be then juxtaposed in comparison, contrast with the other two ways that, that the devil is defeated. The first way he is defeated in power, but the second and third describe him being defeated in, rep, in reputation and finally in the very essence of who he is. They are both in verse 11. The, 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 this reference is primarily to the martyrs, martyrs, but it also applies to us as well. We continue to conquer the devil through two means by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the lamb. So we are finally in the, into the body, but don't worry, this is not going to be the longest sermon you've ever heard. It was a very long introduction, kind of a shorter body, in which we talk about the ways the devil is, is currently overcome. In verse 11, let me read that to you again. And they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Proceeding that is verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. When you read verse 10, you should hear in your mind, it's like, it's like Ric Flair in the 80s. Woo! So many people are in a prison of fear to all the nonsense of this world of sin and Satan, but whoo, God has triumphed. God has triumphed. He has thrown down 
to throw down the accuser of our brethren. So Satan is the accuser of the brethren. How does he accuse us? He accuses us before God. We see that in Job, right? Job wouldn't worship you if you weren't so kind to him, if you weren't so good to him. And I have to imagine God, who knows the end from the beginning, it was hard for him not to laugh in Satan's face because of how many people who have received the incredible blessings of God who curse him to his face all the time. He accuses us before the throne of God. He doesn't get very far. If you believe in Jesus Christ today, you've repented, put your faith in him. God just tells him, what are you talking about? He's covered in the blood of my son. The righteousness of, God, of, of Jesus Christ has been credited to their account. He also accuses us to each other. It's, it's unfortunate how many people will let Satan's lies destroy relationships. This is hard in churches because a lot of times we have a difference of opinion on many things. I mean, I've seen people disfellowship for, for, for the silliest reasons, like stop going to a church, um, like, like disagreements on which football team is best, you know, KC, but whatever. Um, <laughs> the, the color of the carpet is the, is, the, is the common one. In fact, I remember hearing this story one time, I hope it's fictitious, that, uh, that uh, this pastor starts pastoring this church and he sees where the uh, piano is and he moves it to a different part of the, of the platform. And within like a year, there's a special meeting called and they fire the pastor. Second pastor comes in, he waits after the first year to do it. And they call another meeting within the next year and then they, they, they kick him out, you know, they fire him. The third pastor, he pastors there for 20 years. And at the 20th year, he has a celebration. These two other pastors come and they notice the piano is exactly where they moved it. How did he last 20 years in this church? So they ask him, how did this work? He's like, I moved it an inch every year. <laughs> he accuses us to each other. He tries to make us believe that small things are huge things. And that's the saddest thing of all. As a pastor, I mean, I'll be honest, it's hard for me when people decide to go to a different church. Especially people, I mean, there are people who, I mean, I've literally bled for who go to another church and don't even tell me, not here, other places you wouldn't know. Um, anyway, and, uh, and, it, and, it, and it hurts, but you know what it comes down to it? It's like, I can let that hurt. I can let Satan whisper in my ear of how ungrateful and petty they are. And then I, then I start hating another brother and sister in Christ. That's the kind of thing Satan does. He accuses us to each other. He also accuses us to ourselves. How many testimonies have I heard of people, especially around Christmas time? The bottle, the pills start looking a lot more inviting because the devil is accusing us to ourselves. You're not, you're not really where you should be. You should just give this up. I wonder how many people are not here today and not calling out anybody who have started to believe the devil's lies and have now relapsed into a former way of living because the devil has told them they're not truly born again. How do we defeat the devil's lies? How do we overcome him by the word of our testimony? What is a testimony? The word sounds very churchy when you are in church, but if you're standing before a robed individual, it sounds very legally. It is a legal term. It refers to a witness who testifies about what they have seen and what they have heard. Testimonies um, are essential in establishing the truth of a matter. What matter is being discussed? Well, it's the matter that was being discussed 2,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. It is the same matter being discussed now. Is God good? The truth of the question does not come from the testimony, but the testimony reveals the truth. So what is your testimony? This last, uh, this last Reformation Day, you may know it as Halloween, we had a baptism. 
And I made all of our baptism candidates give their testimony. And some were awfully worried, and we, we, went, we went through the process. And, um, and it's not just then. It's so many other times people will say, well, Pastor Jason, I don't have much of a testimony. I didn't smoke, I didn't chew, and I didn't go with girls who do. So what am I supposed to do? And I'm almost kind of like, excuse you, do you think your sin is such a little matter that God doesn't, didn't have to die for it? I talked about, you know, being thankful for forgiven sin. That the amount we love Christ, the amount we worship, is in direct proportion to how, sin, how much sin, how heinous we believe our sin is that Christ had to forgive. And that your, your testimony of being lost at home, doing everything right, is as important as the prodigal's testimony of being lost in a faraway country. And they're both glorious. They're precious. And it's my privilege as your pastor to hear your testimonies. I love hearing your testimonies. Can you imagine if you, are in, if you are in court, you are called as a witness to give a testimony because you witnessed a car accident and you were to give your testimony? There are two like, weird ways we do testimonies in church that kind of apply to this. One would be that we don't want to give our testimony because we don't think that it's really exciting. So that'd be like going to the judge and judge, you can't use my testimony. Well, why, did you witness the car accident or not? Yes, I witnessed it, but I was wearing Crocs at the time. So you don't want my testimony. Now he still wants your testimony. The other, the other way, the other mistaken way we do this is we make it our testimony all about us. I remember, I mean, I've had to testify in church and uh, in, in court a number of times, not for myself, but for others, character testimonies and such. Um, I can't imagine they put me up to the stand. And they're like, well, well, tell us what happened. And I'm like, well, um, in 1983, December 15th, I was born to Ronald and Nancy Fisher um, in Aberdeen, South Dakota. And then I go through my whole life. And then I mentioned something briefly about by this, on this date, um, I saw a, a car accident. Our testimony needs to be focused on who Jesus Christ is and what he has done in our life. I mentioned in, in a prayer, and I wasn't actually planning on doing that, um, that this last uh, Wednesday was my birthday, December 15th. But really, I consider that much less than my born-again day. My born-again day in 1997. I don't even know what day of the year it was because I didn't realize what was happening. I mean, I'd heard the gospel, but I'll give you a little bit of my testimony. I was a middle schooler, so that's why I kind of have a heart for teenagers. Um, I was a middle schooler, and um, I, my, my sister was going to youth group, so I wanted to go to youth group with her because she was my older sister. And I heard the gospel, but I didn't respond to the gospel. And one night, I wanted to do something churchy, so I started repeating the Lord's Prayer. And I got to the point, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And I couldn't finish it because the Holy Spirit started spoke, speaking to my life. You die right now, Jason, where are you going to go? And I give every excuse in the world, and God wasn't having any of the excuses. He starts showing to me my sin. Not from my point of view, because from my point of view, I always had a good excuse. But from his point of view, and I came, it crushed me. His law crushed me to the point where I told God, if you, were to send, if you didn't send me to hell, you'd be a bad God. And it was in that moment where God revealed to me in the most clearest way that he loved me, he died for me, despite this that I, I could see a glimpse of what God saw of my sin, but he still loves me? It is why it says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. But first we have to understand, though, why it's so kind. If we believe we're owed, then the kindness of God means very little. But when we realize that we are the debtor, 
We are the woman with the alabaster box. We have a testimony to share. When this, when this text says they overcame him by the word of their testimony, it's not just any testimony. It's not that I was lonely and now Christ is my friend or Christ has inspired me to act better. It might include those things, but the heart of every testimony should be this. This is what I wait for when I listen to people's testimony. And I pray that it would start off with this, but not everybody's does. Psalm 63, 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. This is why it says of them, for they love not their life even unto death. The martyrs proved this. Others treasure it up in their heart like Mary, the mother of Jesus. We don't find our joy or our delight in anything other than Christ. His love is better than life. He is the pearl of great price. Do you have a Christmas testimony ready? You're about to be around family members who don't know Jesus, friends who don't know Jesus. This week, in, when you go to work or to school, people will talk about Christmas and you have so many opportunities. Do you have a Christmas testimony? Be ready to pivot any conversation into this very thing. You know why I celebrate Christmas? You know why Christmas is important to me? Because his love is better than life. The dragon was overcame by a testimony of people who said, his love is better than life. He is overcome today when we say his love is better than life. When the devil starts accusing you towards others, oh, they're, they're a bunch of hypocrites. They're not doing things right. You tell him your testimony, his love is better than life. I can forgive. I can forgive for his love covers over a multitude of sins. So many people have been hurt by so many other people, but let's just talk about church. I know so many people who've been crushed in church and my heart goes out for them. But love covers over a multitude of sins. Love each other deeply. Remember your testimony that you were not some great paragon of virtue. You were a beggar who came to the table because he loves me so much I can forgive. This is my Christmas testimony. For joy has come to this world. Peace has come to this world. And I have peace with God. And far be it unto me, I will have peace. As far be it unto me with everybody I know. I have a Christmas testimony for his love is better than life. There are so many things I enjoy, but there's only one thing that gives me joy. You know, it's easy to say, come Lord Jesus, come when things are bad. The true test is when we say, come Lord Jesus, come when things are good. I don't know how often I should mention this, but Rebecca's birthday last year, because tickets were really cheap as well, we went to Hawaii, and we had a blast. I'll be honest, I enjoyed it very much. It didn't give me joy, though. I remember one time, we're actually on the beach, and it was just beautiful, and it was the coldest day in Iowa, and I was on the beach in Hawaii. And I remember thinking, this is such a little pleasure compared to the joy I have in Jesus Christ. And to say, even in a time where I'm having, like, enjoying something to say, come Lord Jesus, come. That I consider this so little that I'm not going to say, God, wait, I need to experience this in order to have true happiness before I come to you. But to say even in the midst of, of great blessing, of great triumph, to say, come Lord Jesus, come. Your testimony is spiritual warfare. Right here in the spiritual, we find one of the most powerful spiritual weapons we have. It's our testimony. It helps us when we are weak to remind us that when we were powerless, he saved us. 
It guards us against pride, the devil's favorite weapon he uses against us. Because what did I bring to God? Nothing. He saved me when I was his enemy. It guards against despair because my worth is not bound up in me at all. So when we come to God and when we have these feelings of despair, we're, we're kind of going crazy. We're not connected with real life because real life says that your worth is not determined by you, but it was determined by him because he bought you with his own blood and he gets to decide what that worth is. I was purchased by the blood of the son and he is the one who gets to determine my worth. It reminds Satan that he didn't devour the son, but when the son was about to be devoured by, by death itself, it choked to death. For the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. This is why the scripture says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Don't you love that juxtapose position? We have here in Revelation chapter 12, the devil wanting to devour the son. And then we have in Corinthians where it says, death, where is your victory? Death has been swallowed up in victory. On the cross, the death itself tried to swallow the son and it choked to death on it. And it got devoured by the son, the son himself. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So in Lamentations, the book that, that sympathizes with us in our greatest sorrow, will say, for the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. You know somebody this week who this Christmas, the Christmas blues have set in and they see all despair that song and, and, and poem from Henry Wadsworth's Longfellow during the First or Second World War, he looked, actually Civil War, he looked at the world and all he saw was despair. Hate mocks the song of peace on the earth, goodwill towards men. And that's why he says in his last stanza, but pled the bells loud and deep. God is not dead. He does not sleep. Should we tell people of a God who swallowed death when it tried to swallow him? Should we not tell them of a God whose love is better than life? This is spiritual warfare. It's the thing when we wake up in the middle of the night and the devil's whispering lies to us, we remind him of our testimony so we can remind him of his future. For he was defeated by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the lamb. My second point, the blood of the lamb. The second way we conquer Satan today is the blood of the lamb. There's been an effort in many years, for many years now, to do away with stop talking about the blood of the lamb. People will say, it's just Christianese and it just freaks people out. We shouldn't talk about the blood. Many want a golden cross, a clean cross, a jeweled cross. But the cross, but the cross's only jewels were rubies because it was an old rugged cross, a bloody cross. Satan also hates a bloody cross because his true defeat wasn't in heaven, but on earth. He wanted to prevent it from ever happening by killing the child in the crib. He takes possession of Judas, but before that, he works through a man named Herod the Great, slaughtering the child, children, the boys, in Bethlehem and Judea. You know what's really heinous about that? So Herod the Great, because he's worried about another king rising in Israel, has boys under a certain age killed, Here's what's messed up about that. His own son he killed. He was so worried about losing power, he sacrificed his own son. Caesar Augusta was aghast at this. He said it was safer to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. 
Satan still wants to devour the child, but he can't. Judas, uh, he possesses Judas to make sure the son is finally devoured, only to find out the son has swallowed up death itself. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The blood is the reminder that, that Satan has been defeated by the blood of the Lamb. Christmas and the blood of the Lamb. You can't talk about Christmas without talking about the blood of the Lamb. You just can't. It's the reason for the season. Dragon is slain, not by the sword or the lance, but by the blood and the word of the testimony of the blood. When we say we plead the blood of Christ, it is not a magical incantation to get something we want. It's a remembrance of how the devil has been defeated. We'll talk about pleading the blood of Christ over our church, over our children, over our families. What we mean by that is a remembrance. It is the blood of the lamb that makes us clean before God. It's a great paradox. To be washed in the blood makes you clean. Once again, people are like, don't say that freaks people out. That's really glory and gross. It's in the scripture, my friend. You got to deal with that. It's a great paradox. By being washed in the blood, I could be clean. It's not a magic spell, but it's a reminder of how the devil has truly been defeated. That we are, we are awakening to the reality that the lamb who is slain, the son who will rule the nations with a, rod, with a rod of iron, is king, and his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The, the reference that John, that, uh, that the loud voice in heaven makes in, in uh, verse 11 of chapter 12, of the, um, actually in verse, verse uh, 5, I believe, yeah. She gave birth to a male child, uh, one who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Um, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It is from Psalms chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is a messianic psalm talking of Jesus Christ. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the end of the earth your possession. I'm going to stop right there. There's this wonderful song we'll sing every now and again, especially during missions. It's... Um, um, Ask and you will receive whatever you need. You said, ask and I'll hear from heaven and I'll heal your land. And the refrain is, um, oh Lord, we ask for the nations. I don't know about you, I have a tendency of kind of reading my own things in the songs. I always thought what they were saying by that song, and that's what I mean when I sing it, so that's what I think is important, is that I am asking God for the nations, that all the nations would be under his, under his rule because that's my great desire. It's not for honor or recognition for myself, not to build my brand or anything like that, but that Christ would rule. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He is, he, this child is the one who will rule the nations. The comparison contrast here, we have three ways the dragon is defeated. One was by Michael and, his, and the angels. It's an amazing visual. It's all action, movie, and exciting. Angels fighting the good uh, and good prevailing. Then we have the testimony of God's faithful. In Revelation, we have the picture of the martyrs who love not their own life. Then we have the lamb who was slain. In verse, in verse 5, we have the birth and ascension of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So in verse 5, we have the child, his birth, and his ascension, you're wondering, well, what about the middle part? The middle part is the blood of the lamb. 
It's a great juxtaposition. We have this expectation of a mighty warrior, of a knight in shining armor, but we have a slain lamb who is the dragon slayer. A lamb is a slow animal. You know, some, some, uh, some sheep, I guess goats, actually even faint when you scream at them. It has to be the worst, like, like life preservation, um, like instinct any animal has. They have a loud noise and they, and they literally, like, they're aware their joints freeze up and they're scared. They need a shepherd. A sheep needs a shepherd. Goats and sheep need a shepherd. This is the great juxtaposition between the, Michael and his angel and the angels is the lamb who was slain is greater than this dragon. The lamb, though, this lamb, though, is a lion and a warrior. He is a dragon slayer and in him the devil is utterly and finally defeated. The blood of the lamb is, is an incredible, awesome tool in spiritual warfare. This Christmas, plead the blood of the lamb over your family, friends, and especially enemies. I don't mean just saying I plead the blood of Jesus over blank, but really come to the throne of God in prayer, in persistent, in persistent request to God. I don't come in my own power to demand my rights. I plead on the basis of the lamb that was slain and on his blood, I plead for. When I was a youth pastor, now as your pastor, I do this for you. I plead the blood of the lamb over you. I know that especially during the Christmas time, Satan will want to sift many of you as wheat. And those who are not firmly in Christ will. But I've prayed that, I prayed that the Lord that you would stand strong Amen. to imitate Christ in his high priestly prayer. I remember praying over some of our teenagers I knew that didn't know Jesus. And I'd be in my, I'd be in my prayer closet and I'd just be weeping as I prayed, as I begged God for God's mercy to be in their life to come to repentance and faith. Sometimes we treat that as a very small thing and we think, especially unfortunately in youth ministry, that we should focus more on them being self-actualized and, 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 and good citizens as opposed to citizens of the kingdom. Such a wicked idea. Such a, such a, so trying to make the blood of Christ as something very small. But I would plead the blood of Jesus over them. And some came to faith and repentance. Others, I believe, will. You have a child you have a son, daughter, brother, sister, plead the blood of Jesus over them. Come to them on the basis of the slain lamb, for we overcome the dragon by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the lamb. When you are being spiritually attacked, plead the blood of Jesus, and remember the dragon was defeated by the blood of the lamb and by the word of your testimony. There is this story. Speaking of the lamb who was slain, there's this story about two Moldovian missionaries in 1732. These uh, two young men are in this church and they hear about this island and the owner of this island is a, is a doubly wicked man. He owns slaves and he will not allow any missionary to come to his island. He wanted them to go to hell. And the, the, the man was just, he was just wicked. So he won't allow any missionary to come to his island. And these two brothers are praying and they are so over, overwhelmed by the, by, the, by the Holy Spirit. They decide, well, if he won't let a missionary, if he'll only let slaves come to his island, then we will sell ourselves as slaves. That was their full intention. 
It didn't quite work out that way, but their full intention, we will get there and we will say, we are your slaves, so that they could preach the gospel to slaves. And as they are departing on their ship with their family members on the shore, weeping, they linked arms and they shouted, one shouted to those who are on on the shore weeping, and they said, may the lamb who was slain receive the full reward for his suffering. This Christmas season, may that be our heart. May the lamb who is slain receive the full reward for his suffering. This week, you're going to have divine appointments be ready. This week, you are going to have family members who maybe because of differences, maybe they're very hostile towards you. Plead the blood of Jesus over that situation. Because may the lamb who is slain receive the full reward for his suffering. Worship team, would you come up at this time? So how does Satan continue to be defeated? How in this Christmas season will he be defeated? Overcome by the word of our testimony, by the blood of the lamb. So today I want to challenge you during this Christmas season, during this week, be on your guard. Be on your guard. We are told this so many times in Scripture that, that the devil, our adversary, roams around like a roaring lion. You know it means to be on your guard. I would talk about this often when I was a residential counselor with new staff. I was like, you need to be aware when you're not aware. Like, what are you talking about? I'm saying like when you're counseling one individual, your peripheral vision needs to be aware of what's going on in the living area or you could get a chair to the head. So you need to be ready. You need to start picking up on things when, when matters are starting to go south to be ready for those things. So be aware, be on your guard. Start seeing right now in your family and your friends in your own heart the way the devil is trying to attack you. Be on your guard. Don the full armor of God daily. Some people have taken this even literally when they wake up in the morning, they'll say, I'm putting on the armor of God. And they will go through um, 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 Ephesians chapter 6 and they'll go on to the different parts of the armor of God. But spiritually, put on the armor of God daily. Be on your guard. Second thing I want you to be aware of today is have a Christmas testimony. Be ready to pivot conversations to the gospel of Jesus Christ that his love is better than life. Finally, to remember what makes Christmas joyous and wonderful. It is the blood of the Lamb, plead of the blood of Christ over your interactions this week and all weeks and all times. Worship team, you're going to lead us in our final song. This is our time for us to stop and consider. The Old Testament had a word, Selah, which meant stop and consider. Not simply be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. This is a time for us, for us to ask God, search my heart and know me, reveal any unclean thing, and then to repent of that. And if it's not that, for us to pray to the Lord that we'd be on our guard, for us to be ready in any, every opportunity to give an answer for the faith that we profess and to plead the blood of Christ over those in our life we know that don't know the Lord. Would you please stand with me as we sing our last song?
Amen. Would you raise your hands and receive the blessing of the Lord today? Today's blessing comes from John chapter 1. It is adapted from John chapter 1 by Cara Happy from the UK. Let us go from this place proclaiming that we have seen the glory of God, believing that there is a light that shines in the darkness which the darkness has not overcome. And may the love of the Creator, the joy of the Spirit, and the peace of the Christ child be with you this Christmas and evermore. Amen. Lord, I thank you that we live in the light of that Christ child born 2,000 years ago, but we live in the shadow of an empty cross. For that child grew, he taught people of the way of the kingdom of heaven, died on a cross, rose again, now sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. I thank you for the word of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb, for we overcome him by these, we overcome the dragon by these very things. God bless each one here during this Christmas time. I pray that they'd be ready at a moment's notice to give an answer for the faith they profess, to plead the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, over their friends and family, especially those we don't get along with, Lord. That they come to a saving knowledge of you. Congregation, our, our uh, worship team is going to continue playing. If you'd like prayer, you come up to the altar. I'll pray with you. But may you have a blessed and great Christmas. Lord, I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. God bless you and Merry Christmas. Thank you.